Well, good morning, Timberwood. Glad to see you here today. We invite you to stand up and let's all sing together.
best of east, oh God, your grace for me it never ends. So I praise you, I praise you, I praise you, I praise you, Lord. Welcome to Timberwood Church. My name is Eric Holtz. Good morning, and good morning to you folks at home. What you're missing when you're at home is the fact that Con Nagy has enough seating well for a small family. What's going on back there, Con? Just uh, in case you get tired, you need to sit on the chair. You got, you got, a, you got like a plethora. Gunner feels left out because he has no chair because Con stole them all. Uh, welcome to Timberwood. Few things. Uh, big day today. Exciting day. Baptism Sunday. If you're like, oh, that's right, I was wondering what I was going to do today. Um, there's a map at the information desk to get you to the site of the baptism. The slight change this year is you're going to need to bring your own food if you want to have lunch. So if you're planning on getting Wendy's, you might want to go there now because it'll be ready by noon. Uh, so you want to bring your own food uh, to the baptism that it will be after the second service. So please join us for that. Uh, if you're wanting to be baptized and you didn't come to the baptism class, we can still make that happen. Why would you want to be baptized? Why are we doing baptism? Why do we do it as a big group? Because it's an opportunity for us to say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus Christ in a public way and to be identified with Christ as he calls us to be baptized, uh, be lowered into the waters and raised up as he was. So come join us for baptism. Uh, at, I think it says 1 o'clock or whatever, shortly after 1 p.m. That's what it says. So 
join us for that. Also, uh, this card that you find in your program, please do take some time to fill it out as always. It's in the seat back in front of you, uh, much like when we used to fly in airplanes. The seat back in front of you is where the great information is for the movies, uh, in this case, for the cards that you want to fill out with your name and phone number and so on. Most importantly, though, on the back is a spot for prayer requests. So I've often thought we should do this as like a congregational reading. So like when we do the card, then we would just all say what we say about the card because we all know what we're going to say about the card. Except for those of you who've never been here before, and then you're like, what's this card? So please fill that out. Uh, we'd love to pray for you. If you've got a prayer request, you can drop it in the baskets as you leave later. On your way to the baptism, to get your lunch on the way to the baptism. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning, and it is always great to be here together, to be gathered as your church, whether we are physically in the same space or we are collectively joining together in a virtual format. We are still your church, and we thank you for that, and we thank you for the mystery that is this collective unit of a variety of stories and experiences who have all come together around your throne to worship you, to seek your spirit and the movement of your spirit in our lives, to be challenged by your word, to be encouraged by your word and the truth that you have desired to redeem us. to redeem us from the things that have existed in our lives that have drawn us away from you. And so this morning we ask, Holy Spirit, as we always do, that you would be with us, that you would be alive and moving in our midst. Not only as we sing and as we listen to what you have for us, but as we intersect with one another, that you would be the bonding agent between us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to please stand and let's sing.
Envelope deep in the wild is the Primori. It's in far eastern Russia. If you were ever further eastern Russia, you'd be in the Pacific Ocean. And it's where Jonathan Slot takes us in his book, Owls of the Eastern Ice, a quest to find and save the world's largest owl. Now, the owl that he's after, okay, is the Blackenstone fish owl, which even though this is an owl that lives in eastern Russia, Japan, these types of places, it's named for a dude who is an English biologist. I, I don't know why at any rate whatever that means. So the black and stone fish owl is like this unique owl, okay? It's, first of all, it's the biggest owl in the world, okay? It'll grow like to three feet tall, okay? So it'll, like, right, that's probably, because I'm like 5'11". I'm not six foot, but I got two inch heels on, well, inch and a half. So I'm six foot right now. So about halfway right there. So it'll grow that tall, and it's got a wingspan of in excess of six feet, okay? Up to six feet, seven inches. It's this amazing, and it's got this head of hair, well, actually head of feathers, right? And, and it kind of looks like a severe case of bedhead with, with feathers instead of hair. Think like 
think like if Eric Holst on his wooliest day, okay, when it gets a little lit long up here and he pops it out with maybe a helmet or a baseball cap comes off and the hair just goes whoosh. I mean, it just like inflates before your eyes. These are what these animals, these birds look like, right? They, they are big and beautiful. They are truly iconic. They are icons. They, they are queens. They, they fly, but when they fish, they're, they're more like a sack of potatoes that pounces, okay? So they'll sit on the edge of the bank. You look for them in the wintertime because in the summertime you can't find them with the heavy foliage. And you follow their tracks and literally they'll sit on the edge of a bank, okay? And, and they're fish eaters exclusively, right? And, and, and basically they don't really fly. They'll just see a little fish go and they'll go boom, and just like dive, just take out the fish with the talons and then wrestle up back on shore. Have you ever seen that before? That's really, really cool. Like when a fish um, is eaten by an eagle or a hawk or something like this, and the eagle gets it in the water and they have to like swim to shore. Okay, so these animals, at any rate, okay, they don't really fly when they fish. They hang out on these riverbanks. But it's not just the owls that the book looks at, okay? It's the weird people, okay? Uh, uh, Mr. Slot tells us that meeting a person in the primary, primary was usually a bad thing. <laughs> because there's these mystics and recluses and hunters. And if someone discovers you, you were often forced to sit down and drink with them because that's their custom. And until the bottle was gone, you're not done. And if you were lucky, you would get vodka, and often they had to finish off a bottle of ethanol, which, which yeah, it's just a weird... And then there's the, 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 the fauna, the, the tigers, the bears, the leopards, the moose. I mean, this is an area that is amazing. Wild boar, sable, fox, deer, elk. In other words, it's, it's not a place where there's just one thing. You're not just after the owl. You're attempting to live in this brutal, wild environment. It's, it's more than one thing. And the book says, read it, which I will. I have it on order. Isn't that true, though? More often than not, how, how a, a thing that seems like it's one thing is really more than that. It's really more than one thing. Today, verse 1, Isaiah chapter 63 we have familiar themes, right? But, but it's more than just one thing. You can't just say it's this or that it's that. There's this intensity, there's this pointedness, and there's this purpose. And it is clearly, clearly more than one thing. Listen, the text. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Okay, this verse and set of verses 1 through 7 is really an amplification of chapter 61, verse 2, where the phrase, the day of vengeance of our Lord. We see this exact idea in just a couple verses in verse 4, and we have this reality, okay, that, that vengeance and redemption are tied together. And then there is this intensity. In just a few verses, there, there is this intensity that even though the warrior never is specifically identified, it can A, only be one person, one being, one entity, who speaks in righteousness and is mighty to save. And, and it's, it's a big voice, it's a gigantic voice, and it's going to be a hard gulp. I'm trying to prepare you. It's going to be a hard gulp to get through these next few verses. Verse 3, the warrior is speaking. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments. And stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption, another clue as to who's talking and who this warrior is, my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and poured out their lifeblood on the earth." 
Isaiah is asking the question, why, why is your garment red? It looks like you were in a wine press. And then those verses. And it's like we're coming on the scene of something just horrible and terrible and catastrophic. A scene of just absolute, and, and, and it makes me tremble. The, the, the picture, the words, poetic in nature, are troubling to say the least. And it's a view, unless you are supremely confident of the righteousness of your behavior, it's probably a view you wouldn't let many people see. Compounded by the fact of what blood means to God and how blood is used to be used and treated, and we could easily spend the rest of the day on that topic alone. There there is so much here in these seven verses. And this big voice... And this is what went down. Are are we a little squeamish? I am. Critics might say, I could never follow a being that would do this. And I get it. I hear you. I I hear you. The verses are intense. But, But you also have to realize what the stakes are. And there is a simple reality that traces its way throughout the Bible. That that evil does not get a free pass. That, that, that evil is ultimately defeated. This last week, reading another book review, it wasn't so much about reading books this week, it was just about reading reviews about books this week. It was a book detailing the, the reality of the atomic bombs that were dropped uh, in Japan at the end of World War II. On Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And specifically, there were pictures that were taken immediately in the aftermath. One of the photographers was a Japanese journalist by the name of Ilchi, Ilchi Matsumoto. And, and quite literally, the, the, the pictures were illegal to take and illegal to possess until the United States occupation left Japan in 1952. And, and the pictures show what a nuclear explosion does to bodies and buildings. <laughs> and it's, it is searing. And it's a picture that, quite frankly, has been repeated in the history of the world when one nation's aggression is forcibly and dramatically ended. Evil doesn't get to exist forever. We shouldn't be surprised that God would take action against evil. Evil doesn't get to exist forever. And this is not a case of an angry God being angry. It's a case of God being angry. Those are two different things. It's not a case of an angry God being angry. It's a case of God being angry. And the fact that this weird concept of vengeance in verse 4 is tied to this redemptive idea to salvation. And in verse 5, It's not a case of no one being willing to help, but simply there is no one able to help. This this is a one-man show. And that, again, should give us a clue to whom specifically we are talking about. Which of the triune God is being referred to here? It's one of those times in the history of the created order where God says, I'm going to do the job myself. And we see the theme, both Old Testament and New Testament, For God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and here it is. And we can wrestle with this description and this aspect of God that is displayed. We can be a little squeamish about it. It can offend our sensibilities. We may even read it and not like it, but it's going to happen. And perhaps even more jarring is this picture we see can't be simply viewed as as God in just a a, a distant concept. But this is a servant. This This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. This is Jesus taking on evil. It's Jesus that that dies and is resurrected. We think of uh, crucifixion as something that that happened to Jesus. But really, it was a battle in which Christ won. 
And at the end of all things, which these verses seem to be about more than anything else, again, we have Jesus being pictured as victorious, the arm of God's salvation, defeating and redeeming. And really, with the intensity that we have before us, we need to make a decision about which side we want to be on. Vengeance or redemption? I I really don't know of a more important thought, a a more important concept, a more important decision than we can make. What side of the equation do we want to be on? Do do we want to be on the side of vengeance? Or do we want to be on the side of redemption? And for those who don't choose redemption are, in fact, choosing vengeance. And it's not a picture we want to experience. The redemption occurs because of the salvation of God. It occurs because we know some things that Isaiah didn't know. The suffering servant, Jesus Christ, came and died on a cross. And that if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we start a relationship with the God of the universe and his Son and his Spirit. And it is the single most important starting point. It is the single most important decision we'll make. Get this one correct. Say yes to Jesus Christ and everything else flows from that decision. But the text does go on because it's more than just one thing. Verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. That's a phrase we're going to come back to, steadfast love, Hebrew word. Hesed, yeah. Thanks. I will recount the steadfast love, the hesed of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that God has, the Lord has granted us. And the great goodness to the house of Israel, he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Same word again. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, which turns out to be a misnomer. And he became their savior. In their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and brought, fought himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put them in the midst of them, his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. These set of verses was our Ash Wednesday text. And really, verse 7 starts a segment that will continue into next week in chapter 64. And the style is a lament. But it starts off with history. Remembering history. You don't like history? then you probably don't like the Bible because just about everything that the Holy Spirit does is remind us of what is in this book, this history. But that aside, the text has Isaiah remembering, putting the love of God and the praise of God right next to the vengeance and redemption of God. Again, this is more than one thing. God is not this this simple monolith that just moves in one. No, it, it is a very complex notion. The text, and and we circle back to this idea of verses 9 and 10, of God feeling the pain that his people are feeling. He he saves them. He loves them. And then they rebel. And their rebellion is what forms the last part of our, our comments today. But there is this affection. But the problem that they have was internal, not external. We've said this again and again and again, and it's so critical that we understand this. And it gets repeated in the life of Jesus. Jesus came to save his people from what? The Roman government? No. Economic disaster? No. Uh, Opposing forces? No. Jesus came to save his people from 
Jesus came to save me from my sin. Jesus came to save you from your sin. The external forces that we think wage war on us, that's not the danger. That's not the danger. That's not what Jesus came to save us from. He came to save us from ourselves, from our sin. And these verses remind the people of their duplicitous nature and the love of God. They, they remind that God has consistently acted with love. It's like God's always waiting to take the shaggy dog in. A couple of weeks ago, I referenced this uh, bicycling magazine edition with a gentleman on the front cover who is a uh, one-legged rider, Leo Rogers. I actually had a friend of mine who picked it up afterward and said, hey, I want to get that article. The intriguing thing is that there's another cool article in this issue of Cycling Magazine, and it's about Mike Cohen, okay? Mike Cohen was a 33, 32-year-old cyclist and uh, having profound heart problems, okay? And he's dying. Can't ride anymore, he's dying. So he gets on a heart transplant list, okay? And, and it's, you know, it's one of those things, right? Because for, for you to be eligible for a heart transplant, you have to be sick enough to need a new heart, but you have to be healthy enough to survive 12 hours of surgery. And then something crazy happened, something tragic happened. A Navy flight surgeon, surgeon James Mazzucci, uh, I'm sorry, James Mazzucci was severely injured in a helicopter accident. 32 years old. His mother is notified that if she wants to see his son, make a quick trip out to the West Coast. She has to make the decision to end life support. And James's organs are then prepared for organ donation. The intriguing thing about this is that Mike Cohen gets James's heart and agrees to meet Sherry, James's mother, at James's gravesite. And so what he does is he gets on his bike because he can now pedal a bike again because he has a new heart. And he pedals 1,400 miles across the country and meets Sherry at her son's gravesite. And there's this amazing picture okay, of, of, of Mike standing with his, his cycling kit open and Sherry, the mom, with a stethoscope. And, and she's got the stethoscope on Mike's chest, listening to her son's heart. <laughs> that, that's hesed. That, that's steadfast love. That is literally giving everything that you have directed at a person. And that is how God acts repeatedly. This word, hesed, steadfast love, again and again and again, and God says, this is what I offer you if you follow me. And this is what I continue to offer even when you rebel. Don't miss this, please. Please don't miss this. The people of Isaiah's day were so confident of their relationship with God, their relationship with Yahweh, that they never bothered to check in with the prophets to actually determine and discover how odious, how offensive their hearts and actions really were. I mean, repeatedly in the book of Isaiah, and I was reading in a different prophet this morning, repeatedly the nation of Israel is condemned for their hearts, which are far away from God, their minds, which think about God as this distinct, a separate entity, but not a love relationship, how they lack justice, how they engage in oppression, how they don't care for the immigrant or the orphan or the widow. It's all through the Old Testament. They're in and out of exile. The promise of a future is a long ways off and only for the faithful and not for all. You have to realize that is the context. And if you don't think that that has application today, then you haven't been paying attention to what we've been saying. So, so here it goes one more time. If we think we are followers of Christ because of a point-in-time decision or because our parents were religious, or because we go to church from time to time. But, but, but we really don't authentically follow Jesus and care about the things that Jesus cared about? 
that I think were more on the vengeance side than on the redemptive side. And I don't want to face a holy God someday with a stammering, vacuous, I love that word, vacuous. I've been looking for four weeks to use vacuous. Finally found the right spot. I don't want to stand before a holy God someday with a stammering, vacuous excuse of, I didn't know. I didn't know these things were important to you. No one told me. No. Our lives, our behavior, our thoughts, how you think, how I think, even if there's no outcome, just how we think matters to God. And and you cannot come to any other conclusion when you read this book. You can't. But still the people ask why. Why, why, why? Verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy habitation. Holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? Okay, the, pe- the people are addressing God. The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? Don't you love the external locus of control in this? The people are face to face with their own, again, odious behavior. And they're like, well, why, why, God, are you making us do this? And God's like, what? What did you say? No, no, no. No, the problem isn't me. No, what I offer is steadfast love. What the problem is, is you. Oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your inheritance, your holy people held possession for a little while. Now we're talking about the land. The land in Israel's mindset is very important, and rightly so, right? Because God says you'll enter the promised land. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you never ruled, like those who are not called by your name, and it will continue next week. And if the first verses of this chapter describe this cataclysmic battle at the end of all things, Jesus in all of his royal majesty destroying evil once and for all, and if verses 7 to 14 are appointed historical recollection of God's faithfulness in Israel's double mind, then maybe, just maybe, these last few deal with the exploration of what the people thought God's purpose was and what God's purpose is. The cry of the human heart. Why is this bad thing happening to me? And and to be sure, there are bad things that happen that that don't have their origin in our behavior. I get that. But frequently, we do get what we pay for. It's kind of like wages in a 401k. You get rewarded for the work that you do. And in your retirement, you live off the benefit of that which you stored up. You get where your allegiances lie. Truly, we live in a land where you can get what you want. With the only question being, are the things we want the things that we should want? This question of why do I walk away, Paul would echo that again in Romans. Why do I do the stuff I know I don't want to do? And why does the land seem to be so important but not important? And again, these things are helped by the virtue of the fact that we have Jesus Christ. Remember how Jesus talked about a a spiritual kingdom versus a physical kingdom? He wasn't talking about Babylon or Assyria or Greece or Rome or any great nation that would come after that. He was talking about a spiritual kingdom. And the people should have been able to figure that out. And it really gets at the core of what God is trying to do, albeit in a slightly devious way. God's purpose isn't physical reality. It's our hearts, it's our minds, it's our actions, it's our spiritual souls. So so what do we do with all this? Is it kind of like the hunt for the owl, you know? These big owls. He's got a great picture of he's captured an owl and and it's got something hanging out of its beak and it's a fish. (laughs) It's like it's the coolest thing in the world. And all this other stuff. What do you do with this? What do you do with this intense, pointed, purposeful set of texts, set of verses? What do you do with the intensity? 
Is, is it vengeance or redemption? W- which do you choose? Because you're choosing one. You're, you're proactively choosing redemption or you're proactively choosing vengeance. You're proactively choosing to be on the right side of a relationship that features God as Savior, Jesus as Savior. And again, it starts with a prayer. It starts with a heart that wants to follow him. But it's more than that. It's not just asking Jesus to be our Savior. It's it's whether or not we're faithful or whether we're rebellious. Are we faithful to what God is doing in our lives or are we rebelling against his best for our experience? And then do we think of in terms of our purpose of our lives? Is it a physical purpose or is it a spiritual purpose? To have our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength aligned with the God of the universe. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you from a very hard text, a very challenging text. And and there's parts of it, Father, where I can't fully wrap my brain around it. But I also acknowledge the need with my friends to come face to face with the reality Do we experience your redemption or do we experience your vengeance? Are we found to be faithful or rebellious? Are we more concerned about the physical or the spiritual? And irrespective of who we are or where we find ourselves today, Father, your words ring true in our ears because your words are true because you speak in righteousness. And so we come, and to the extent that we need a relationship with you, something that we need to start for the very first time, we ask your son Jesus to be our savior, to forgive our sins, to redeem our lives. And to the extent, Father, that we've been a little less faithful than we should be, We ask for your Spirit's guidance to get us on a pathway of faithfulness. That we would ask and seek forgiveness for our rebellion. And Father, that our hearts and our minds and our souls, the very essence of who we are, would be focused on the spiritual reality of your kingdom and how we live that on a daily basis. Father, thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please stand and let's sing as we close today.
that we experience the redemption of Jesus Christ, that we are faithful to his call in our lives, and our minds are spiritually focused on the realities that are before us. Go with that challenge. Go with that confidence. Go with the peace of Jesus Christ. Amen.